Hey friends, welcome back to Listen For Real. I am Jennifer Brown and I'm so happy you are here. This is one of those conversations that you think is going to go one way and you're sure you've you've picked a topic and then so much good stuff comes up organically and that's the way I like it. So I have learned and that is one thing that I really endeavor to do and be is agenda free. I may have an idea. I may think I know I, I'm i going to talk about this or I want to flesh this out. But then there are times where we just naturally migrate into certain things and it's so worthy of conversing and re-listening to and rethinking about. And so that's what we're doing today. I am with my friend Valerie Alexander and you are going to hear a great episode on all kinds of stuff. Um, but we definitely talk a lot about gender, gender bias, um, namely uh, in the as women. And then also we talk about race. We talk about so many things here and all of it is just golden and I'm grateful for it. So I'm glad you're here and joining the conversation. Stay with us. Welcome back to Listen For Real. I am so happy you are here. This is going to be a really great conversation. I am with Valerie Alexander, and we are going to talk about gender, gender bias. I'm going to basically just own the fact right from the start that um, I am one of those people that thought the idea of a glass ceiling and the fact that there is a gender gap or there's in gender inequality, especially in corporate America, was simply a individual problem as opposed to a systemic issue. And it's pretty funny and ironic that I think this because, and I was saying this to Valerie as we were preparing, the fact that I was an at-home working mom for 21 years, I wasn't in the corporate world. And my experience of it was listening or observing other people. And it was a little bit of this idea that uh, if it's not raining on me or I'm not wet, then it's just not raining. I got that. I cannot take credit for it. That's my friend, Sean Smith, and his discussion on racism. And it's the same here, though. I really felt like, well, if this isn't happening to me, if I'm not being um, sexually oppressed, if I'm not being uh, treated differently because I'm a woman, then then it just must not be happening. And many of you have heard my previous episode in which I talk about this um, to a lesser degree with my friend Julie Goring. And this, we are going to take this to the next level. Valerie is a star when it comes to the study and experiences she's had. So it's not just lived experience, my friends. It is the fact that she has made it part of her work, a large part, to advance women and to understand that unconscious bias that we have and educate other people on unconscious bias. She does keynotes. She does talks all over the world in everything from corporate environments to nonprofits, you name it. Um, she speaks to wide varieties and a broad number of audiences on this topic because it matters everywhere. And I am just super excited for you to meet Valerie Alexander. She is she is wise, and I have learned a great deal from her. I have expanded my paradigm already, and it's going to get stretched some more today, I am certain. So, Valerie, I'm so happy you're here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm very excited to dive into this conversation today. Yeah, yeah. it matters. And Tell and me why it matters to you. Tell me why it's so important to you. Just with what you started with, with this concept 
as a woman, you were thinking, well, this isn't what's really happening. If somebody's not getting far enough, she's not doing the work. And if imagine if you feel that way as a woman, as a woman, how many people who aren't women look around and think, well, there's no advantage here for me. I, you know, she just didn't work as hard as I did. She doesn't take as much initiative. And that's true also, by the way, for differences between people who are privileged race, people who are of a privileged religion, people who are of the privileged nationality. There's a great joke, which is two fish are swimming and an old crab walks along the bottom of the ocean and says to them, "Um, hey, boys, how's the water today? And then he keeps walking. And when he leaves, one fish turns the other one and says, what's water? Exactly. Yeah. And it's because you can't see the privilege you're swimming in. Right. Um, And one of the other issues, one of the things that happens for women, there are so many ways in which we are held to higher standards in our workplaces, in which we are not given the same support from our colleagues or our support staff, where we get more pushback from clients in which we are judged to um, require a little more perfection. It's believed that we can't do something. And so therefore we have to prove every moment that we can do it. These are all conditions, which mean we're swimming against the current. And what happens when you're swimming against the current in the work you're trying to do is you look over at the person swimming in the current and all you think is, well, damn, that guy's a good swimmer. I wish I could swim like that. And by the way, the guy swimming in the current is also thinking, damn, I'm a good swimmer. (laughs) Yeah, That person does not see the current. And even if they do, even if they do see the current, they're still thinking, well, yeah, sure. I have a little bit of current, but if we were in the same lane, I'd still be the one getting ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, one of the things women need to realize and the, their employers need to realize or their clients or whoever has to see the equality better is that someone who has had to swim against the current the entire time to get to this destination is a significantly stronger swimmer. Yeah. That's the swimmer you want on your team. But we have this other issue of all of this, which is the gaslighting, which is the, well, that's not happening because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, that's not happening because you're black. You know, that's that's not happening because you're neurodiverse. You know, just you just work harder. You just try more. Even the act of having to work harder is wrong. Even even the act of having to work emotionally harder is wrong. Mental energy is mental labor and mental labor is labor. (laughs) Why are some people forced to put in more labor? just to be given the same opportunities and seen as performing at the same level than others. Well, and that's exactly why that's why we do this. That's why I have these conversations is even as you're talking, I am realizing I've been in that echo chamber that was very comfortable and everything was just neatly defined. And if it didn't fit in this box, well, then it wasn't real or it didn't apply to me or what whatever. I, it's just, it's frustrating to me. And so I'm determined to do something about it. And sometimes just, so I'm going to look foolish or I'm going to look silly or people are going to go, you have got to be kidding that this is how you've thought, but that's okay. Because here's what I know. If I was operating in this mindset, how many other people have been or still are, it's a process and a great, I call it my great undoing. And I can't do it alone. I have to talk with other people. I have to surround myself with these ideas and hear from, and what this is what shifts me the most, is someone else's lived experience, someone else's story. They share something and I go, oh my God. I had no idea. Story is so powerful, which gosh, that could be an entire podcast in itself because you are a screenwriter, correct? Yes. Yes. So let's, let's tell people also, how does Valerie know of what she speaks? Okay. First of all, you have spent time practicing, practicing as an attorney. You worked in Silicon Valley, I think investment banking. Is that right? Yes. And yes. I was an executive at, at two different internet startups. Okay. Executive, two different internet startups. And you have worked in Hollywood. There is a 
what I love about that is you have experienced your life, your role as a woman in a variety of environments, mm-hmm. probably more environments, obviously, than those. But that's a pretty broad grouping right there. And what are the common things I was thinking about that you could go, yep, I experienced it there, there, there. It's it's ubiquitous. What would you say or, or share a story that stands out to you that you go, okay, this will paint the picture? To, to give you an idea of the common things is the casual lack of awareness that you are treating someone differently because of some identity factor. And okay. I, I can use gender as an example or the casual belief that it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I have three big stories from my law firm that I want to share, and then I can relate it a little bit to things that happened in Hollywood when I was working here, which were, by the way, Hollywood is far worse than any other industry I've ever worked in. They are absolutely open about it. Not now, it's getting better, but um, you know, I was an active screenwriter for a decade, not that long ago. And I had I had an executive say to my face, they said, uh, I'll, I'll say this out loud. I don't care. I was I was called into Fox for a meeting because they they read some of my work. And the one of the senior senior executives at Fox said to me, "We want to be in the Valerie business. Like, what what shows do you want to write on? Which of our shows do you love? What do you want to write on?" And at the time, Twenty Four was a big hit. And I said, "Well, Twenty Four is my favorite show. I'd love to write on that." And he said, "No, Twenty Four won't hire women. Are there any others?" A senior executive at a publicly traded company didn't even think twice before saying out loud to my face in the room, 24 won't hire women. Wow. Uh, The worst is the Simpsons. It's despicable. The first five years, the first episode of the Simpsons ever was written by a woman. She wasn't on the writing staff. Several of the most iconic episodes were written by women. They weren't on the writing staff because Sam Simon, the showrunner, was going through a divorce and he didn't want any women in the room. Wow. The Simpsons had zero women on their as staff writers and, and mean, meaning staff writer, story editor, co-producer, executive producer, co-exec producer. I mean, at every level, zero women because the showrunner didn't want women in the room because he was going through a bitter divorce. Wowie. And I think the number may have changed, but two years ago, the total app on the 30th anniversary of the Simpsons, Simpsons being on the air for 30 years, they had had a total of four women on staff. And the Fox network let that happen. Not only they, they enabled it, they they absolutely there was zero penalty for any of the showrunners who wanted to do this with their shows. I had a day when I was driving to a meeting for a television show that um, it was a legal th- it was a legal show, a law show. And on my way there, the my agent called and said they canceled the meeting. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, they had an offer out to another woman and she accepted and I said, oh, so that means they're fully staffed? And he said, no, they just aren't meeting any more women. Yeah. And I'm a lawyer. And they didn't even meet with me on a legal show because they'd hired a woman. So in other words, wow. Yeah. And again, Hollywood is just... and. and Ditto for they've got the one black person on staff. Um, and by the way, who they're also not listening to in the room. Um, that's like if if you watch the show Modern Family, oh, it, yeah. it's disgusting. I mean, it the way Modern Family treats and portrays women, it is the least modern thing I've ever, ever, ever seen. If you watch that show, just rank just career-wise how successful each character is. Who's the most successful character career-wise? Oh, it's the old white man who owns a business and has a trophy. Oh my gosh. Who's the next most successful character? It's the cisgendered straight male who is works and has a stay-at-home wife who raises his three children. Who's the next most successful character in his career? It's the non-flamboyant gay man who's the lawyer. Who's the next most successful? Oh, it's the more flamboyant gay man. At what oh. point 
does any woman on that show have career success? The first year they gave one woman a career, which is Claire. They had her crawling around on the floor on her hands and knees, slipping in ice cream because she was such a bad decision maker. I find that show disgusting. And I will share with you that show had one woman on the writing staff and she was Asian. And when they won the Emmy for the first, for their first season, and she was up on stage, her entire Emmy speech was said, um, and I, I want to just want to apologize to all Asians about the jokes we're making. So talk about intersectionality. Oh, there is a woman who has to fight with them about the racist Asian jokes they're making, representing her Asian identity. So she didn't have the ability to stand up for her female identity. And that's how that show continued to just. Uh, the, and then let's go to the children. Oh, the pretty one who gets all the dates is the dumb one. But the smart one who does really well in school is socially awkward and a social outcast. Oh, my gosh. I, I just, and these portrayals happen when you don't have women in the room. Yeah. And Hollywood is just the worst for that. And I would have thought, okay, so full disclosure, totally thought, oh yeah, Modern Family. I've seen, I've seen countless seasons of it. Yeah. My kids and I would watch it all the time. And I thought, oh, this is so progressive. <laughs> Not in the least. I, I totally thought that, but you're right. Okay, so that's super interesting that you put that. And then again, Hollywood is is touted to be super progressive minded and and not remotely. That's this is fascinating to me. Yeah. Hollywood is not even close to being. I, I mean, yes, they're happy to give to causes that, yeah. and you know stand up yeah. for things and you know wear ribbons. But then go say, okay, go put equality on your television writing staffs. Here, here's another great Hollywood story. I was brought into, I, I, I'm at the point where I'm, I will just share with this. Um, I'm extremely successful right now as a keynote speaker. And I, that gives me permission to not ever have to worry if I get hired tonight another screenplay, whether, I, you know, and God bless, if I do, that'd be great. If I don't, people ask me that, what do you write? And this is the truth. I write complex political thrillers with female leads that aren't necessarily likable. What I get paid to write is Hallmark Christmas movies. Yep. Because no one's making the actual female lead movies that I do write which is fine. I still had a fun, exciting career, made a ton of money as a screenwriter. It was great. Um, but now I've moved on past that to where I have such a greater focus on creating opportunities for others, on diversity, on eliminating unconscious bias, on well, outsmarting unconscious bias. We're never going to eliminate it. That's how our brains function. Yeah. But um, And it's been such an amazing last two years, especially with 2022 is already getting almost fully booked up. It's been incredible. So therefore, I can say the things I wasn't able to say on the decade I was working in Hollywood, and I can name names. So here's one. There was a project called Justice Deferred at Warner Brothers that was a legal thriller. And they brought in 22 writers to pitch on it. And nobody could crack. It was a great book, but the book had some real story problems. Well, I was the only writer who solved the story problem that the book had. And I'll share with you in a second what that was. And so I pitched it to producers and they were like, yes, this is the writer we want. So they went to the studio. So producers are the ones who sort of put together the movie, put together the package, and then the studio finances it. So they went to the studio executive and they said, this is the writer that we want. And the studio executive replied, well, there aren't any men in the book. Or, there aren't any women in the book. So we don't need a woman writer. So of the 22 writers they brought in, I was the only one who was a lawyer, which means that at Warner Brothers, to write a legal thriller, it's more important to have a penis than a law degree. Well said. And oh, these are gosh. just the ones I know about. Yeah. These are just the ones where it was said to me directly. Yeah. That you're not getting this job because you're a woman. Yeah. Um, 
I had another one where I met with a showrunner and I was really the ideal person for this show to be on the writing staff and didn't get it. Um, and he had been told he had to hire a woman and he had two slots open and he filled both of them with men. And he came up with all kinds of justifications for why. But then someone else who was on the writing staff later told me, oh, yeah, that guy can't stand being around women who are smarter than he is. My word. Wow. And yeah. How is this not? Okay. (laughs) Why are people just fearful? Okay. I'm not going to give up hope that at some point, just as in other industries, it's become intolerable and people have realized, okay, we've got to stop. At first it was because they just didn't want to get sued. Right. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to cover their ass and they wanted to be on the right side of, 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 of equity and inclusion, et cetera. So DEI at first, I think was becoming very, um, well, we just got to show we're doing it. Yeah. It's optics. Right. Yeah. But then there are many, it is a matter of importance. It is, it is simply not in alignment with their values. And so this is something we stand for in our company. And I think that's growing little by little. So what do you think it's going to take? Kind of like, you know, Me Too and Harvey Weinstein, you know, may or may not have, I'm not in Hollywood, I can't speak to it, but that definitely upset some apple carts, right? and called people to account. So what do you think it's going to take in Hollywood to change this? Well, and is and is New York, now New York's a different animal, okay, but there is an entertainment industry. There's a music industry in Nashville, let's say. Is it the same? Do you, or do you, would you even know this? Is there anyone we can point to and go, oh yeah, it, it shifted. The shift is happening there. Okay, so Hollywood's coming? Not right now. But here's why the shift is happening. The singular control over entertainment is slipping out of people's fingers. You can see it in books. Here's an interesting thing. This was the problem in publishing forever. Uh, You know, you were three times more likely to get published as a male author than as a female author, because there were these essentially eight, I think now it's five or maybe four publishing houses that really controlled all the books and where they showed up. Well, What changed for that was Amazon opened up its platform and they said, okay, we're going to create a publishing platform. You don't have to buy a thousand books. If you want to publish a single book, you know, we do dropship printing, we can do it. 68% of the authors on Amazon now are women. Love that. Because women are like, we have these stories to tell. And then they tell those stories and other women buy them. But those voices were completely silenced by an industry that controlled the means of production. Hollywood is getting its butt kicked pretty badly right now in terms of worldwide content production. And I, we were talking about Netflix earlier. I watch a lot of international content on Netflix. I have friends who are actors who work full time right now, just dubbing shows that are made internationally and some of their biggest hits look at squid game squid game took everyone by surprise and it's it's incredible content that was produced without any hollywood inter intervention and so hollywood is going to have to change pretty drastically if they're going to keep up with the world that's number one Number two, and this is the stat I talk to corporate leaders about all the time when it comes to diversity and inclusion. First off, do it because it's the right thing. Yes. But second, in America, Gen Z, Gen Z is the incoming generation. We, we still think of millennials as kids. Millennials are between 25 and 40. Mm-hmm. Gen Z is the 15 to 25-year-olds right now. Gen Z in America is only 46% non-Hispanic white, which means only 23% of that generation are white males. If your product only appeals to white males, forget about it. You've got about two more decades before you're obsolete. If your company only knows how to hire white males and not just hire, hire and promote and recognize the value of and pay fairly white males, you don't have a leadership team two decades from now. And Mark Twain famously said, when you need a friend, it's too late to make one. Well, 
When you need a diversity platform, it's too late to start one. Everybody should be looking right now, number one, at your corporate culture. There, there is this, what they call the 70-20-10 rule. Um, right now, companies are spending about 70% of their resources on recruitment and hiring diversity. They put about 20% into equitable advancement, performance reviews, and they put about 10% into their corporate culture. That is completely backwards. Upside down. 100%. You should be putting 70% of your efforts into creating an inclusive culture. Yep. And an inclusive culture means one way where everybody is truly judged by the same standards. Mm-hmm. Not just that, oh, we all have the same check boxes. Yeah. Because we all have the same check boxes. That's how you get a team of chimpanzees and a team of penguins all being judged on how fast they can climb a tree. Yeah. And so you don't have an inclusive culture. If everybody has the same check boxes, but those check boxes have to happen to favor one group over the other, um, you don't have an inclusive culture. If a manager believes one person is going to fail and believes another person is going to succeed, so the one person who struggles a little is like, well, that confirms it, and they get out, but the person who they believe is going to succeed struggles the exact same way, and yet that person gets given a little extra help, a little more resources until they can quite get it. See, there are the ways that we don't realize our cultures are not inclusive are insidious. I, I'll, my favorite example that I use all the time is that my sister, my sister's at a company that she loves right now. And I won't name it just because it's her privacy, but she loves this company. She is very successful there. She left her previous company because there was an executive poker game that her previous company had every Friday night, there was an executive poker game and the executives got together at the poker game and relationships were formed and decisions were made in that poker game. She come back Monday morning and find out a policy had changed in her department because of something that happened at the executive poker game on Friday night that she was never, ever once invited to. Wow. And Interesting. for those who think, oh, she didn't invite them. They didn't invite her because they thought she might not play poker. My sister has a world series of poker ring. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this Maybe point, they were intimidated by her skills. Other people always say, well, that's why they poker didn't acumen. No, no, no. These are old white men in Tennessee. Yeah. They didn't think for five seconds that my sister might beat them at poker. Yeah. yeah. Even though okay. she's beat some of the top players in the world. That's classic. They didn't want women at their Friday night poker game. And you know what? That's fine. Boys can be boys. You can go play poker with whoever you want to play poker with. Do not let it affect the outcomes in your workplace. That's right. That's the difference. Form a relationship with. Don't let it affect who gets the boss's ear, who gets to make policy decisions. Yeah. And so that's how you create a non-inclusive workplace. And we have to have workplaces not just that are inclusive, but that feel inclusive. That's that's why we don't have retreats at plantations. Yeah. So that because as soon as your workplace stops feeling inclusive, yeah. you know, no matter what, as soon as somebody, I won't say some somebody feels as soon as it appears to everyone in the workplace that it's not fully inclusive, that people can't come bring their authentic selves get acknowledged for their contributions, even if their contributions don't seem as mainstream as somebody else's. As soon as a workplace doesn't feel inclusive, Jennifer, who do you lose first? Who do you lose first when a place is not inclusive? Well, you lose first. You lose your person of color. You lose your woman of color. Right. Let's say you've got five people of color. You've got five people of color in your workplace. Which one of them is going to jump ship first? Actually, see, I, I think the woman of color is going to stick around because she's got stick to it. I'll share with you. There's other reasons why that is. But 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 it, let's say you have like 10 marginalized people, 10 people in a marginalized group mm-hmm. or a non-majority group and the workplace stops feeling inclusive. Which of those 10 people is going to be the first one to go? Tell me. What? Tell me. Tell me, I don't know. Okay. The one with the most options. Of course. And so when your workplace stops being inclusive, you're losing your best people. People. The person who is getting a call from a headhunter every week and doesn't take it, 
when they're in the break room and yeah. someone says, um, you know, hey, yeah. what do what do all you people think about this? Yeah. Without realizing how diminishing that is, how otherizing right. that question is. Um, you know, the person who says, like, uh, how do you deal with your daughter's hair? Huh. You know, to yeah. somebody without realizing that's touching on a subject that is sensitive and puts that person in a, in a category of being the other, that person is taking that call from that headhunter next week. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, peace out. I, I don't need to deal with this. That That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and it's what my sister did. She yeah. left that company. She went to another company. She is thriving at the new company. The old company for about the first six months, somebody called her every week and yeah. begged her to come back. You're kidding me. Wow. Oh, no, That was a big loss for them when she oh. left. And oh. they, and by the way, just between you and me and anyone listening, <laughs> no one in the history of employment has ever told the truth in an exit interview. Nobody leaves and says, it's because your old boys club didn't made decisions without me about my own department. But you know why? Because they don't make exit interviews conducive to that. I'm right. convinced companies, it, it's all about covering your ass. It's all about, it, I've never understood that. That is the one of the best opportunities. I consulted for a company last year and I thought that's your that's your gold right there. Those people who have left you can give you so much good information. And yes, you could go, oh, well, they had an axe to grind. And so therefore this isn't accurate. Still, you can wade through it and you can find what is useful and it may not be easy to hear. But why on earth wouldn't you want that? I, I don't understand that. People are very bad at getting feedback. Well, yes, that's true. Very bad at it. Um, that I I saw a meme today that said something like, um, "Why is everybody so sensitive these days?" You know, in the past, people their things didn't bother people so much, and somebody replied, um, "No, in the past it bothered them. It just might cost them their job or their life if they spoke up, and now that's that they're right. speaking up, you you know." We talked about this before. Somebody's gender problematic behavior or LGBTQ problematic behavior or racial problematic behavior, when it's called out, that person is like, are you calling me a racist? As if being called a racist is more damaging than and being one. Than, well, than being one. And I, I'm not calling people racist. Because, right. you know, asking an innocent question of somebody I will give a perfect example. And I'm in a women's group that meets every week. And one of the women in there was in a neighborhood where there is a family that after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict revealed themselves to be in support of it. Like they were celebrating it, which she is like, she said, oh, wow, they're white supremacists. I, she hadn't realized it. And there is a black family in the neighborhood and unbeknownst to me, I wish I'd been part of this conversation. She asked one of the other women in the group, like, what do I do to let them know I'm on their side? And the other woman says, like, go over and let them know that, you know, you're an ally. And that if that, there's any problems in the neighborhood, you're on their side. And so the, the last time we met, she said, she shared with us that when she told the black family that they were like, get off our property. And I was just dying inside because I thought, why didn't you ask me? Literally, it's my area of expertise. Why didn't you ask me before going over and doing that? Because mm -hmm. talk about otherizing somebody. Mm -hmm. Talk about literally showing up at somebody's home to say, you're different. I would have said, you know what you do? You go over to that neighbor's house and you say, hey, it's really nice to be neighbors. We haven't really gotten to know each other. At some point, I'd love for us to have dinner together. Yeah. That's the conversation yeah. that says, I see you as a human being and I want to connect with you as a human being. That doesn't show up as like your white shielded ally. I'm here to protect you, marginalized yeah. person. It's like, yeah. oh, Lord, I, you know, someone said to me like, well, what if there's a Muslim woman in my company and I want to know how Muslim people feel about this? I'm like, she's not Muslim people. She's a <laughs> human her. being. Yeah. yeah you, then you say to her, hey. How do you feel about this? Yes. And have a conversation with her. Yeah. You don't say, how do all Muslims see this? I, I always say, I always ask people, 
reflect on your own, whatever, pick the identity, pick your gender, pick your religion, pick your, um, reflect on that for a moment and then ask yourself, is there an opinion I could express that is shared equally by every single person who identifies as my gender, who claims my religion, you know? And if that's not true for you, it's not true for anyone else either. And the most important thing we can do if we want to be inclusive as human beings is to take all the identity groupings out of those interactions and say, what do I have? How can I connect to this person? Now, I want to make this really clear. That is the exact opposite of saying, I don't even see color. Oh, that's a really important distinction to make. Talk more on that. And can I just say for a second, this, I am so silent because I am learning in real time. Guys, you need to understand this is the kind of stuff we need to be talking about and normalizing these conversations. We too easily go into our, put everything in the box. That's just what we've been conditioned to do. And that needs to get blown up. And so that's why I'm trying to have this conversation and listen so deeply right now, because I, I, I know everything you've mentioned, I've done or said every bit of it. I'm sure of it. And by the way, this is the other thing. We have to stop demonizing our allies. We have to stop saying, oh, well, then you're a bad person because you, right. know, you once asked a, a, a Black woman how she does her daughter's hair. Right. Okay. Now you know better. But uh, the the self-reflection is is the important part. Um, and, and by the way, I, that, that question in of itself is not inherently evil if you were invited into that conversation. If she started that conversation with you, that's great. But you ask yourself, is this a question I would ask the person who looked like me? If it's not the question you would ask the person who looks like you, it's not the question to ask the person who doesn't look like you. Figure out another way to connect. One of the exercises I do when I work with people is we do identity um, introductions where people list all of their identities. And it's like 30, over like 30 plus categories. They just start writing down every way in which they identify themselves. Because I say your identity is both a connection point and a barrier. I'm a woman, you're a woman. We can connect over that. You know, uh, We're in the same age category. We can connect over that. We have the same nationality. We can connect over that. I don't know your religious background, but I'm, I, I believe we're of different religious backgrounds. So is that a barrier? now, as soon as we find out we have different religious backgrounds, or is it the way we were raised religiously? Like, for example, I say an incredibly devout practicing Catholic has more in common with an incredibly devout practicing Muslim than they do with the casual Catholic who was raised with it, but doesn't do anything now. I agree. Yeah. Um, But so we have to figure out what of our identity points can we use as connections with people? And what of our, our identity points are we seeing as barriers? And, and across all things, like I went to Berkeley. As soon as I meet someone who went to Berkeley, I'm like, hey, like somehow, well, yeah. yeah, somehow we're like more connected. There's some, And there's that other school in the Bay Area that people seem to think is good. I meet someone from that school. I'm like, hmm, let's see what you're really worth. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's a barrier. So Berkeley can be a connection. It can be a barrier. Yeah. Yeah. These are things that we have to think about. Am I making a connection or am I creating a barrier? You might be asking a question that you think is making a connection, but because that question is based on seeing that person as different from you, it's actually creating a barrier. And one that's one of the reasons I don't see color as a problematic statement. First off. It's a lie. <laughs> you do see color. There's no way that if, if a black person and a white person walked in a room together holding hands, there's there's no way you didn't notice. Yeah. It's like saying, I don't see that you have bl- uh, black hair and you have blonde hair. I mean, well, yeah. of course you do. Of course you do. You see it. You absolutely yeah. see it. Um, so that's one of the reasons it's a problem. But the other reason is I don't see color as a shield that people hide behind to explain, well, I don't treat anybody differently. Mm-hmm. So I don't really believe that anybody treats anybody differently. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody is being treated differently, it's probably not because of their color. And these are the issues. I, I 
I have a friend who's in an um, athletic team and she sent an email that the head of the team had a really negative reaction to and wrote back responding to everybody in a really shaming way. My friend is black and we were talking about it. And I said to her, do you think the email she sent would have been the same? She didn't even let me finish the sentence. She's like, no way. She's like, she would have never used the same language. She would have never felt as compelled to reply. She might've even reached out to me privately. Like it was the first thing. It was the thing I thought, because I know she's the only black member of this team. Um, but even just casually saying, do you think it was because she knew right away? I will share with you, if you asked probably every other member of that team, was this email because she's black? They all would say no way. They all say absolutely not. Now, is that because because I felt a little something rise up in me as you were saying it? And it was the, oh, let's give them a benefit, the benefit of the doubt feeling. So what is that? This is the thing for everyone to remember. We judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their behavior. Yep. And that means that when it comes to inclusivity, intentions don't matter. Only outcomes, only your behavior, only the way you made that other person feel. Think this is the best way I can describe it so people can fully understand it. If you want to hang a picture on a wall and you you want to hang it and you intend to hang it in a particular spot. So you hammer a nail into that wall and then you discover, oh, it's in the wrong spot. So you pull that nail out and you put it in a different place. It's now in the new place. So your intention is met. There's still a hole in the wall. That That's part of it. There's still a hole in the wall. Um, the other thing to remember is when we ask someone else to consider our intentions, as opposed to the outcome we have created for them, we're asking them to give us more of their mental energy rather than requiring ourselves to perform the mental energy it takes to get it right the first time Mm -hmm. to stop and think about how, how will my behavior affect the other person? And, and, and also to stop and think about, would I be doing this if this person looked like me? Oh, the complexities of this. Okay, hold it. We need to take a break. Let's come right back and continue this conversation. Valerie, here's something I was thinking about as you were talking. And I want to play with this a little bit because uh, I instinctively go, wait a minute, what about the person who has that victim mentality, let's say, who, and I'm thinking of someone very specific in my life whom I know. And they have a lens through which they see things. They have a filter through which they hear things. They expect a certain treatment from people. How do you separate that? And so, therefore, let's say a man talks to them in a certain way. I would not receive, if, I, if I'm standing in the same room with that woman and a man says something, I, I, I don't see an issue with it. She is completely offended by it. Do you see the difference? And, and I'm not using that, or, or maybe I am. Am I using that as cover to protect patriarchal systems? <laughs> you know, I have a friend who would say, yes, that's exactly what you're doing, Jen. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's I mean, this is, this is the hardest part about this is, is. we, if we're going to get this right, we have to embrace complexity. Yeah. 
they're there. And even I, I just used the wrong language, even saying, get this right. There's no right. Right. There's no one yeah. universal way of treating everybody that applies to everyone. You might have someone from a certain identity group say, oh, yeah, this is fine. You can use this language around me. And another person from that group can say, whoa, I'm offended. Right. And what happens is then we just, you know, whatever, clap our hands of the whole thing. That's not the right phrase for it. Mm-hmm. What is it? Wash our hands of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We just say, okay, fine. If I can't get this right, I'm not going to even try at all. And that's not the response. There, There is a, a, Phrase, uh, like story I use a little bit when I speak about happiness as a business advantage. People would save hundreds of millions of dollars if their work if the workforce were happier. It's actually yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars in our economy would be saved if we had a happier workforce. But one of the things I talk about is we had the worst possible saying that we were all brought up with, and it's the golden rule. And it comes from the Bible. Uh, Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And that somehow became the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. Well, first off, one of my favorite things when talking about the Bible is the phrase, read the whole passage. (laughs) Because when we, that passage in the Bible comes from Jesus talking about how to treat your enemies. How do you treat your enemies? You know what? Do to them what you'd have them do to you. And that's a really good piece of advice. You know, don't do worse to somebody than you would want done to you. That's absolutely right. But that's not how you treat your friends. Don't treat other people the way you want to be treated. Treat other people the way they want to be treated. treated. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the the, the most obvious example of this is in your marriage. Think about your spouse. How would your marriage go if you only ever treated your spouse the way you want to be treated? Right. And so every person, again, it comes back to treating someone as an individual as opposed to as a member of an identity group. Now, yes, there are people who are more sensitive about their identity groupness than others. There are women who complain about being treated a certain way as a woman. And I think that's the way everybody's treated. Mm -hmm. Um, But I say that invites self-examination. Mm-hmm. If if you said, if a man says something and you're like, I'm fine with that. And she says, I'm offended as a woman. He can't, he can't point to you and say, well, she's, a, she's fine with it. So it's not a problem for women. Mm-hmm. That, that requires, look, I got called out, you know, in my Ted talk, in my Ted talk, I have the fray, I talk about the phrase, may you live in interesting times. And I refer to it as a, the Chinese blessing that doubles as a curse. Well, I had a woman reach out to me and say, you know, that's not even remotely Chinese. And with three seconds of research, I discovered the origin of that phrase. And it was a British Lord who said it and called, referred to it as the Chinese blessing. Um, and then she also pointed out, and when you used that phrase in your TED talk, you had a fortune cookie on the screen. And she said, that's called a cultural shortcut. And that's using something stereotypical to represent an entire group or an entire race. Mm-hmm. And I completely agreed with what she said. Here, here was the most interesting thing about that. When, when you give a TED talk, if it's one of a, you know, one of the more legitimate licensed TED organizations, they're fact-checking everything you say. Mm-hmm. They're really careful. People are fact-checking you. They force you to fact-check yourself. They make sure you're not saying anything wrong. I had to provide scientific backing for all the scientific evidence I was sharing. That's right. Nobody questioned me saying there's a Chinese blessing. Mm-hmm. It doubles as a curse. Nobody questioned it. No, none of us even thought twice about it. I didn't think twice about it. And like I said, with a three-second Google search, I figured out, oh, nope, it wasn't. And this yes. woman who was of Chinese descent told me that made me feel like this talk wasn't for me. That made me feel like the other. Now, I could sit there and say, you know what? 100,000 Chinese people have seen this. They have no problem with it. (laughs) Right, right. But that's not the right response. Right. It is the right response is to say, wow, you're right. I was inaccurate. I was inaccurate in a way that was culturally insensitive. And I understand why you have a problem with it. And I will do better. Yeah. Yes. 
but I want to, sorry. And I I know that this is, this invites such conversation. She also had a problem with my use of the word ninja in that talk Mm. to describe myself as the warrior who is both invisible and dangerous Mm. because she said, that's also fetishizing Asian culture. Hmm. And that one I'm willing to push back on a little because ninja is now a word in the English language mm-hmm. that has a specific meaning. That's right. And is used in a variety of contexts. And we do have um, assimilation isn't the right word, but we, we, we are a melting pot. We do have a merging of cultures. I use a lot of words that did not originate in the English language mm-hmm. because that's growth and that's how, that that's how that's evolution. Yeah. And so I can hear her objection to that and I can acknowledge that she has a problem with the use of the word ninja as describing to describe a white person. Mm-hmm. But I can say that I'm I'm not prepared to say I was wrong, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to deny you having a problem with it. Mm-hmm. That's um, a really important. I, I I love that response, and I, I appreciate that you actually spelled that whole set set situation out because most people will just either go to you could have gotten really defensive, and um, you could have you know, called her out, you could have made it a side taking, let's go into our little tribal corners and, and you know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. yeah. And and you, and you, instead you went, okay, I I consider the preciousness of the soul and what she is bringing to me. I'm also going to hold it um, carefully, but I'm going to consider this. And I, I don't have to I wanted to say fall on my sword, which that could be received. (laughs) Right. That's all. Um, I don't think that is Asian. Okay. No, yes, it is. See, I could be wrong right now. Everyone know where it is. Okay. Then I'm all right. And, and, and that's, see what I mean? Like here's there, there's, there's a very, very fine line between cultural appropriation and cultural assimilation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and blending of cultures in a way that advances all of us. And the the thing I say, when we talk about cultural appropriation, it's two big issues. The biggest issue with it is when the culture that originated something doesn't reap the benefits of it. If you look at rock and roll music, yes, rock and roll music is cultural appropriation of black music. Mm -hmm. But, you know, are, are we supposed to not have the Rolling Stones because of who they were influenced by? Well, no, but who they were influenced by should have had the economic success that they did. Mm-hmm. And that's where the issue lies. And that's where we need to say, okay, if you get, if you are influenced by someone and you can use that influence to create something else, or to, you make sure that you're not reaping all the benefits that the person you were influenced by doesn't get. That's where the work has to be done. Yeah. But do you, but you know what I want to see though is nor, can we normalize screwing this up a little bit? Oh, and here's God, why, yes. <laughs> because I think we all get so scared of, oh gosh, that could be considered cultural appropriation. So we just clam up. We don't say anything. We'd rather not be construed as a racist or as a, as a homophobe or as a misogynist because, so we just don't say something. Right. Right. I, I almost want to normalize. Let's screw up because that's the chance to go. Oh, oh, I mean, the, my whole I say this on practically every podcast right now that I record with people. The genesis of this, the origin story of this podcast even happening is because someone called me out on Facebook for something I said. And oh, man, they called me out hardcore, called me a xenophobe, called me a racist, called me just a, a horrible person who didn't deserve to have take up skin. There was yeah. a whole thing about it. And and I honestly, and what it was, was um, it was one of these memes that somebody else put up about um, comparing the um, tear gas at the southern border a couple of years ago to the gas chambers in um uh, in, in Nazi Germany. And, um, and I was like, 
wow, I think that's a bridge too far. <laughs> and they were like, no, and this is exactly how it starts, et cetera. And so then, of course, what did I do? I dug in and I tried to defend my narrative and, and then looked for everything to support my narrative, erroneous or not, right? Because at that point, you're defensive. And right. I realized, okay, there was some stuff they had legit beef with me on and some, uh, you know, my heart was in the right place, but I just royally also screwed up in the way I was approaching it. So that's part of this is I, I, I at first wanted to just, I, I made a vow, screw Facebook, screw social. I am not commenting right. on anybody's post because God forbid, I'm going to say something that's going to be wrong and it's going to offend someone. But you know what? Then I realized, does that mean I just duck out and that's it? And I just be quiet and I just stay careful and I stay in my lane and I, I, the, it's just that's not how I want to live. I love humans. I love interesting people. I I'm gonna screw up. I'd rather screw up, and that doesn't mean I want to sacrifice somebody else's soul really being injured, right? I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I'm determined to learn this, and it, it sometimes it's just through doing stupid, insane, stupid stuff. I, I mean, I, I understand and so appreciate we have to normalize screwing up because we're all gonna screw up. I, I'm, I'm still, I screw up every day. I, I've said things wrong in, I have a, an exercise we do um, in one of my diversity trainings. And there was a black woman in the room who said, I don't need my pain to be the basis on which you train white people, how to, how to see my pain. Oof. And I totally got that and appreciated it. And then unfortunately, several other people of color in the room told her she was wrong and we had to put mm. stop that from happening completely. Um, and now though, now I know when we get to that exercise, I describe the exercise and I say, I understand this is painful and nobody's pain has to be the basis for anybody else's learning curve. So you don't need to share if you don't want to share. If you feel this isn't an appropriate exercise, you can talk to me about it or feel free to, you know, either step away or just tell the people at your table, you're not participating. Um, but it's a really effective exercise and, and a lot of, a lot of people of color love getting to share for the first, like it's, it's about the first time you ever experienced being right, you know, racism. And a lot of people of color really get to love getting to share that. So I'm not going to tamp that down, but now I need to be sensitive that it's not for everyone. Yeah. And, and I, I have to make sure I'm not singling out people saying, well, you're wrong if you don't like this part of it. And I have to be open to somebody sharing with me what they don't like about it. And I'm okay with that. And I embrace complexity is probably the theme of everything I do. There aren't easy answers. I, I just was working with a company this morning where I had to say to them, um, you're about to go into the worst possible phase of this, which is where people are encouraged to speak up and spot what's going on and see what's going on, which is going to make you feel that it's so much worse than it. You're going to think, well, we were better off a month ago. Like we were, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no, you weren't better off a month ago. You just weren't seeing it or hearing. It. Yeah, exactly. You just didn't know. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so with the awareness comes the pain mm. and comes the growth. No one ever grew inside their own comfort zone. Yeah. And the stay in your lane, I have a problem with that because I'm told that all the time. Mm. And everybody staying in their own lane means nobody grows. That's right. And so I don't agree with that, but I also really, really have to point out, you know, Google works. If if you're not sure, hey, is it okay to ask this question of or or I said this in a in a group. And somebody reacted. Is that a problem? That is not the time to go at, like if, if you said something about um, someone who was gay in a group and someone who was gay said, wow, that's really inappropriate. That is not the time to go ask all your gay friends if it's okay. That, that's the worst possible response. You are then forcing them to choose between your friendship and their identity group. You're also otherizing them. You're saying, I see you as gay, not just as my, you know, I, I, I see you in a way that makes you different from my other friends. That is the time to go on Google and, and literally type in, is this comment inappropriate? And I guarantee blogs have been written about whatever you're facing. 
Right. And you can read them all and you can process them. Do the work yourself. That's the most important part. If everybody would commit to do the work on themselves for themselves, we'd all do better. Yeah. You know, what's so funny uh, is I was thinking in terms of even asking guests on this podcast, my whole premise, and my audience knows this, is I speak to people who have a different lived experience than me, different demographic, perhaps, or a different um, um, different background, different belief system, different worldview, whatever, right? You want to know what I realized? A I've lot had, of guests look like you. They all look like me so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, I have my first male, uh, who happens to be white, uh, and we're discussing racism, which is hysterical, um, happening next week. And, but I mean, and it's an amazing talk and he's, he's, uh, it's going to be so good, but I realized this, that's it. You just framed something for me that I couldn't put my finger on. It's like, how do I go to my girlfriend and go, well, I need a black person on my you know, show. I need a friend who is identifies as a, a lesbian because I happen to identify as a straight, cisgendered woman. You know what I mean? That feels othering right there. So yeah. I just realized in my attempt to really, in my attempt in my heart is wanting to do right by this project because I just know I want out of my own echo chamber and I invite others to do the same in their world, but going about it is really wonky. And so you just articulated what I didn't realize was my problem. And that's definitely a part of my problem. So, you know, audience, thank God you all show me such grace. Um, But (laughs) here we go. Because that's the whole point is if I'm not straight up and honest on this, then what am I even doing here? So everybody knows that's the one thing they're going to get from me is, come hell or high water, I'm going to be pretty straight and open the kimono, you know? Um, Jen, here's the thing I would highly recommend for what you're looking at doing. Come up with the topics you want to discuss. Come Mm. up with the top. This is a lot of podcasts do this. They start with the people they have access to, and then they bring them in to discuss the topics. Yeah. Come up with the topics you want to discuss and then do a search on LinkedIn. I, I think most people want to be podcast guests, yeah. especially about the thing on which they're, they have expertise. Yeah. And so go do a search on LinkedIn and you can say, if it, it's a very easy way to figure out, is this person um, you know, a different race than me? Are they a different nationality? Do they live in a different part of the country? Um, you know, not, not as easy LGBT, but you know what? You, you can go into LGBT groups and say, mm-hmm. I'm looking for a podcast guest to talk about the, you know, yeah. introduction of same-sex kit, you know, characters and stories at, at what grade level. Mm-hmm. And you will have more expertise come at you where you don't have to say, I'm looking for a gay person to talk about this. <laughs> you can say, here's yeah. the topic I would like to have a conversation about. Please let me know the people who you think have expertise in this topic. Oh, I love that. Oh, thank you, friend. That This is awesome. This is awesome. Okay. We need to wrap this up. I am grateful to you. There's so much more I want to cover. Can we consider a second episode? <laughs> well, given that we never even got to actually talking about actual gender issues. <laughs> no, <laughs> not a second no. episode. <laughs> yeah, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. Okay. Um, but that's the whole point. Sometimes it just... We cover what needed to be covered and what is yes. meant to be covered here. And I am really grateful to you. I'm I'm grateful for your candor. I'm grateful for your willingness to be vulnerable and just own parts of your story and and risk screwing up. You know, we're just doing the best we can. And um, but we can do better. Okay. We know we can. And if we keep endeavoring to do better. Oh, I hope I hope that catches fire too. Is just that we're all just trying to do better, and we need to extend a lot of grace um, to one another. So, with that, I am grateful you will be back, Valerie Alexander. <laughs> and although you guys, you need more of this woman in your life. Okay, um, your website is Speak Happiness. 
Yes. So speak S P E A K for, cause it's, yes. people get that wrong. Sometimes. So speak happiness. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to have all the ways you can find Valerie's socials, uh, her website, everything in the episode notes. So do not despair. You will find her. And she is a wonderful human to know. And I'm just grateful to call you my friend. So thanks Valerie for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Fun conversation. Yes, always. And we'll see you all for our next episode. Thanks, friends. And please keep speaking. But more importantly, please keep listening deeply. It matters. We'll see you next time. Listen for Real is produced in Rockland, California, and is edited and mixed with the help of Marky B. Our music, entitled Zero, is created and performed by the amazing Shannon Curtis. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and we will see you next time.